The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, outside of the myth or the story that became the well-known story of the Holy Grail, I'm pretty sure that the story that has had the most or the longest afterlife, the most reverberation from the Celtic myths is that of Diarmut and Grania, the love story of Diarmut and Grania. And that is what I want to read from today. Um, not because uh, millions of people out there have heard of the story of Diarmut and Grania and have been aching to hear this uh, podcast or have been buying up the books. It's not because of that. It's because the the story of Diarmut and Grania, for anyone who is uh, familiar with it, uh, ends up becoming the basis or the jumping off point for the later continental romance of Tristan and Isolde. The story of Diarmut and Grania goes back at least until the 10th century. There is evidence in, uh, there's not a full story, there's not a full version of it from the 10th century, but there are other uh, episodes and other poems that survive from the 10th century, which presuppose the knowledge of the story of Diarmut and Grania, at least in the 10th century. And what I will read from today comes from a literary manuscript that uh, was copied down in the year 1651, and we actually know the the scribe's name, but I will not dare to uh, butcher it, uh, although he was a native of Shanco in County Sligo, uh, the book I'm reading from says. I should say the book that I'm reading from is The Pursuit of Diarmut and Grania, uh, edited by someone whose name I also will not butcher, uh, but it was published by the Irish Tech Society in 1967, and I will put a link to it in the postscription. So we can imagine a story that was already uh, in the air by the 10th century, and whose literary version uh, that I'll be reading from uh, only... Uh, came down to us in 1651. That's almost seven centuries of, uh, I'm sure, lost versions, lost written versions of the story, but also oral versions of the story that people just passed on, quite literally folk versions that uh, people told and retold and uh, passed on and embellished and did what they wanted to it. I should say a little bit about the story before we go anywhere else. It's funny because the the version that I'm reading from is something that I probably could get away with reading the entire thing. 
there aren't that many digressions or the digressions that are there aren't um, don't seem as much of an affront as other ones do from the other texts that I've read. But to get the real sense of the power of the story, it seems best to summarize the beginning, uh, or you might say summarize the first uh, three quarters of it, and then read the last quarter of it, uh, the, the climax of the story. And there you really get to see the power of what is happening here. Um, as it is told, and you'll, for those who are familiar with the story of Tristan and Isolde, you will recognize uh, parts of the story here very easily. Um, as it is told, there's an old man, there's an old ruler in this case, Finn McCool, who sends a much younger man to fetch a wife for him. And, um, and she does, and he does find her. But it's at, at the wedding feast, and they're not married yet. At the wedding feast, uh, she, can, she sort of sees the old man that she's being married off to, and she's not quite interested in him at all. And of course, this is Grania. And she asks uh, one of the people sitting next to her, who are all of these other people sitting at the table? And what you sort of have here is uh, Finn McCool, uh, an older man, sitting around with almost a local militia worth of armed men. And uh, Grania gets a name and an introduction for each of them. And she goes around the table and asks all of them, um, basically, will you run off with me? And they all refuse. There's a great tension here, as there is in Tristan and Isolde, where, uh, where Tristan felt a loyalty to his king, to his ruler, King Mark. And in the same way, uh, Diermut, while he is in love with Grania, also feels a great devotion to, uh, to Finn, and that is a thing that is running throughout the entire story. Uh, but, that, but as it happens, uh, she is able to uh, put everyone at the table to sleep, sort of with a magic drink, and they are able to run off together without anybody seeing them. And she also, uh, uh, Grania also sort of pins Jeremiah down with a series of taboos that he better do what she is saying, otherwise these bad things will happen to him. And that carries on that tradition that I've mentioned in other episodes where uh, the, the, the great power of language that existed within these Irish stories, where you could make someone do what you wanted them to do by issuing these taboos or the great weight of fate that was felt to be uh, on people's shoulders if they were unlucky enough. And, and so the story is basically one of, uh, one of uh, flight and elopement. Uh, Diarmut and Grania uh, make their way all throughout Ireland and Finn is following behind. And I would say probably 75% of the story is just that. Um, a flight and a following, a flight and a following. And sometimes uh, Finn catches up with them. Sometimes the other uh, sort of uh, sort of unattached mercenaries that he hires catch up with catch up with Diarmuid. But he always seems to get away. He always does get away. And uh, 
he does this and does this so many times and in such colorful ways. And one of them, the forest that uh, they are hiding in is surrounded. And another one, just the tree that they that he and Granny are hiding in are, is surrounded, and and they are able to escape. And it made me think of um, having just seen the new Matrix movie, how uh, how that's some version of what we come to expect from certain action movies or certain storytelling. That, however, um, however impossible it would be in real life. Uh, the characters in these stories are able to do these things without ever getting hurt, without ever getting caught. And uh, there's also the... Diarmuid and Granya also get help from the father of Diarmuid, or the, the foster father of Diarmuid, who also uses magic to help them escape. And let me see here. And there's a very... can find it here. And there's a very sweet moment when uh, after they have escaped together and they have been uh, and they have been reunited and this is one section where it says and Diarmuid greeted them and the life spirit of Granya nearly went out through her mouth with joy at meeting Diarmuid and Diarmuid told them his tidings from beginning to end and they ate their meal that night, and so and so, and such and such. Um, there are wonderful little uh, uh, escapes and reunions and flights and all of this going on. And there's also uh, a wonderful uh, passage that is replicated uh, in the Tristan and Isolde stories. And that is uh, that for the first part of the journey, Diarmut is feeling quite attached and guilty. Uh, to his old master, Finn. And so he doesn't want to consummate his love for Grania. But when they cross a stream together on their horses, uh, Grania insults him and says something like, uh, the, uh, the, the water splashing up on my thighs is more daring than you are. And uh, the, uh, the romance writers for Tristan and Isolde take up that line exactly in their version of the story, and it's a, a wonderful bit. And, and that is sort of what happens. And I, I first heard this story from uh, listening to a lecture from the great mythologist uh, Joseph Campbell. And in his version that he told, um, the whole story was a flight. The whole story was them being chased. But in the version in this text that I'm reading from, what happens is that eventually uh, Finn sort of gives up and Yermut and Grania go off to their own place together and they start a family. And it isn't until later, uh, from the part that I'm going to read from, that the real climax of the story comes. Now, and that is, that is the basic outline up until that up until that part. There's also uh, a section where she, uh, where Grania finds out she's pregnant. There are digressions with, uh, to go off and find uh, magical berries. There's a digression about uh, playing chess. And all of these things that you would imagine 
were sort of motifs in the stories of the time. And one of them, I know there are a lot of uh, uh, illustrations and woodcuts of Tristan and Isolde uh, hiding up in a tree from King Mark and the, and the people who are trying to capture them. And in the story of Jeremy and Granny, they are up in the tree and uh, down below is Finn McCool and uh, his other men sitting around uh, playing chess. And every time uh, Finn McCool is about to, about to win or make a good move, Diarmut uh, drops a berry, I believe it is, or a piece of fruit down onto the square where the person who is playing against him should move his hand. And there are all these little humorous little things. And you can imagine how much a story like this is dependent upon uh, motifs of this kind that we uh, simply are no longer familiar with and we don't really quite know where they came from in the same way that someone, again, might look back at uh, the Matrix movies and wonder quite how all of it fits together. Um, now, before I read the very ending, I wanted to read something uh, from the introduction. And this is a point that I mentioned in an episode uh, just last week that uh, was very moving to me. And that is that on the one hand, you have the literary version of Diarmut and Grania, and then you have the continental literary version of Tristan and Isolde as well, on up to Wagner and, uh, and, and on forward. Um, but you also had uh, a sort of uh, history of Jeremiah and Grania on the ground, the folk version of the story that was passed uh, by word of mouth, you would think, in, uh, in villages and farms and uh, places like that. You can imagine someone riding in, perhaps, and telling a story or just a story that anyone became familiar with and they retold it when they got back home. And as the editor tells it, uh, it, became a, uh, it became a tradition in Ireland and, and as well in Cornwall. When my wife and I were in Cornwall, uh, we saw this firsthand that you had, um, that uh, people took the story of Diarmut and Granny and they took the landscape around them, the ancient dolmens that they really had no idea what they were about. Uh, that were scattered across the landscape, the, uh, the burial mounds, but also just the forests, just the natural parts of their own landscape, the forests, the mountains, the hills, all of those things. And they began to say that these such and such were the places where Diarmut and Granny slept on their, on their treks throughout Ireland. And the editor says something very, very moving to me about this. And um, it says, uh, it can be assumed that for a story to become so thoroughly localized as to be connected in a certain district with some local landmarks, a long time is probably required. So these stories must have been living with these people for a very, very long time. And they must have become attached to them so completely that they were able to, as the scholar says, become localized, not just to a district, but to the landmarks in that place. And it seems to me that this is what these stories 
This is the power of these stories, that they live not just in people, not just in the tales we tell, but, but in the places, quite literally, that we live. And uh, as I've mentioned in other episodes here, the trek of Jeremiah and Granny throughout Ireland becomes an excuse for the, the storytelling of landscape, the mythologizing of landscape, the naming of places. All of these things are able to be uh, brought to the fore just through the, uh, what you might say, frame story of a, uh, of a love story. And at some point, you can imagine that the story itself almost became um, almost became the second part of what they were really trying to say, like the way people say in Pittsburgh here that George Washington uh, went down this river and slept at, in this room. Um, it was less what happened in the story than the fact that the story supposedly happened here or there or in a place nearby. But in any case, to get to the very end of the story of Diarmut and Granny, I'll start reading from that. Or I should say, let me offer one other thing. It'll be better to mention it here than in the middle of the story as I am reading. And that is that the story itself and the, uh, the end of uh, Diarmut's life is linked to uh, a boar, a wild boar and a hunt that takes place to, uh, to go and kill it. And I became interested in the figure of the boar in mythology and, uh, and religion, in pagan religion, uh, because of Joseph Campbell's retelling of the story of Diarmut and Granny. And ever since then, I've been just collecting bits and pieces here and there. And a few years ago, I wrote a, uh, a paper um, and I posted it online with the name, Don't Be Such a Bore. And I'll just read the very first paragraph of that, which suggests, um, or guesses at, uh, why it is that the bore held such a primal place in the lives of the early Europeans, as well as the Greeks. If you think of Ireland all the way at the, I guess, northwestern edge of Europe, and you think of Greece, down in the southeast end of Europe, uh, both uh, cultures have um, stories of boar hunts, and um, that has always seemed significant to me. And this is what uh, what I wrote some time ago. Uh, the author Anne Ross writes that the boar was the most important animal of the Celts, the most important cult animal of the Celts. And as another writer says, the boar was one of the most ferocious and aggressive animals a person was likely to encounter. And as such, the boar became a symbol of military prowess and brute strength. But by virtue of being the favored food, both of the Celtic gods and of mortals, the boar became a symbol of plenty as well. These two natures, the aggressive and the giving, were combined and, considered religiously, they became symbolic of the chaotic and unpredictable forces of nature, 
forces that could lead to an early death, as we will see in the case of Jeremoth. It could open up a passage to the other world, or it could provide the generosity of physical sustenance. Similarly, the boar also became associated with illicit love of various kinds, such as Jeremoth and Granny's, which was, legally speaking, uh, illicit, as well as incestuous or extramarital. And finally, the boar became associated in stories with the nature of time itself, whether with nat national history, the round of the year and the seasons, or merely as bookends to the beginning and end of one's life. And so as I read from the story of Jeremiah and Granny, keep all of that in mind. And I've actually also wondered lately uh, if all of this isn't part of the reason why uh, why the ancient Jews, the Israelites, decided upon um, not eating pork uh, of any kind because it had such rich uh, ritual and uh, poetic, literary, creative, all of these associations with paganism or with polytheism. But that is uh, for a different, a different talk. And here we are. So as I said, um, at some point, uh, Finn McCool gives up uh, chasing the couple around Ireland, and they settle down. And uh, you might say years later, perhaps five or ten years later, uh, Granny and her daughters are planning a feast at their house. And just, uh, I believe it's right around the time, um, it takes them a year to prepare for it, of course, because uh, that's just the kind of feast that uh, happens back then. And just as that year is ending, this is what it says. At the end of that year, Granny and Diarmuid lay asleep, and Diarmuid heard the voice of a hound through his sleep in the night. And he started out of his sleep, and Granny caught hold of him and asked him what he had heard. The voice of a hound I heard, and I wonder at hearing it in the night. And Grania says, May safekeeping be on you, for it is the Dwatha to Danan who are doing that to you, because of Angus's protection over you. And lie down in your own bed again, and do not heed it. And Angus is uh, was uh, Diarmuid's foster father, I mentioned before, who, uh, who protected him with magic to get away from uh, Finn McCool's men a few times. So Diarmid lay down again, and he had not fallen asleep when he heard the voice of the hound again. And he rose up, and Granya caught hold of him, and told him not to go towards the voice of the hound in the night. Diarmid lay in the bed again, and a deep sleep and lasting slumber came on him, and it was the voice of the hound that woke him a third time, always threes. And the day with its full light came upon him after that. And he rose up and said that he would go in the direction of the voice of the hound, since now morning had come. If so, said Granya, take Moraltach, that is, the sword of Menanon Maglir, with you, and the Ga Dirdwin. I will not, said Yermud, but I will take uh, a few other words that I won't try to pronounce. And he's talking about the weapons that he is willing to take. 
And Diarmid went forth from Raythagrania, and he made neither halt nor stay until he reached the summit of Biangulban, and he found Finn there before him without any one else with him. And Irma did not greet him, but asked him, Was it he who was holding the chase? Finn said that it was not he himself who was holding it. But, says Finn, I went out with a company of people some time ago, and one of our hounds being loose by our side happened to come upon the track of a wild pig and could not be caught, and it is the boar of Ben Gulben that is met and it is idle for the Fianna to pursue it, for it is often before it escaped them, and it has killed fifty warriors of the Fianna just this morning, and it is now coming up to the band towards us, and the Fianna is in flight before it, and let us leave this mound to it. So Finn McCool is there and is drawing Jermud into the hunt for this boar. Diarmuid said, however, that he would not leave the mound before it. And Finn said, That is not right for you, for it is one of the prohibitions on you. It is one of the gesa, one of the taboos upon you, that you must hunt a pig. And Diarmuid says, Why were those injunctions put upon me? And as you listen to what Finn's answer is, think of how modern... Uh, how how very modern indeed this this explanation is, where you get the uh, the twist ending here. Um, it could have been written in so many other ways. This you can imagine um, putting what I'm about to read first, so that you know the whole time that Diarmuid is doomed. But only at the end uh, do you actually find out. And I also wonder if since audiences would have become familiar with this story, so they would have been they would have known the ending anyway. They would have known that Yermud was doomed to die because of this pig hunt, uh, this boar hunt. I also wonder if the uh, this digression here about why he is connected to a boar hunt is kept to the end almost as a as a kind of suspense where people would be and the audience would be almost waiting for the explanation. They would know the explanation was coming, and they would be wondering where the storyteller would put it. And this is a, a fantastic bit of narrative here, just told by Finn to Diarmuid up on, uh, on Ben Gulben. I will tell you that, said Finn. One day that I happened to be in Broad and Great Allen in Leinster, with the seven battalions of the standing army of the Fianna around me there. And a little Bran came out and asked me whether I did not remember that it was one of my taboos to be ten nights, one after the other in Allen, without being out of it for one night. And those injunctions did not happen to be on any man of the Fianna, but just on myself alone. And... The Fianna went in that night, and no one stayed with me but your own father, Diarmid, and a small number of the learned men, and the old laves of the Fianna, and our hounds, and our hunting dogs. And I inquired as to where we should go that night, and your father, namely Don, said that he himself would give me hospitality for that night. 
If you remember, said Jeremoth's father, when I was outlawed and banished from you, and from th from the Fianna, that Croknad, daughter of Croaklief, became pregnant by me, and bore me a son, and Angus of the Brugge took that son to foster and to rear him. And another son was born to Rock, son of Dirmach, at that time, and he asked me to take that son to foster and rear him. And I said that it was not fitting for me to take the servant's son. And Angus has my own son, and I have not seen him for a year, and we shall both get hospitality for this night there. So this is this sort of uh, sort of gets into what appears to have been a real situation, a real social situation in Ireland uh, before the Middle Ages, and that is of of people sort of fostering their sons off to to other uh, great men to have them raise them. And here, Diarmuid's uh, uh, downfall, which which happens when he's just a child, it only comes about because it seems his father misses him and wants to spend some time with him and sees this as a good excuse to do so. And Finn goes on to say, I myself and your father went to the house of Angus of the Brugge that night, and you, Diarmuid, were in that night. And Angus had a great affection for you, and that affection was not greater than the affection which the people of Angus had for the son of the steward, and your father was very envious. And a quarrel rose between the two of my hounds, and the women and small folk of the house fled before them, until everyone rose to put them from one another. And the son of the steward went between the two knees of your father in flight before the hounds, and your father gave him a manly squeeze of his two knees, and he killed the son of the steward, just like that. And the father, the uh, the father of the steward, the, the steward, came up and said, Finn, there is not in this house tonight a man who has got out of this quarrel worse than myself, for I had of children but one, and he was killed, and how shall I get compensation for my son? from you, Finn. I said, to see if the mark of the hounds was on him, and if there was, I myself would give compensation for him. The boy was examined, and no mark of the hounds' teeth or nails were on him. And so the steward said, I put you, Finn, under injunctions of strife and destruction, that is, the pain of a woman in childbirth, and the vision of a dead man over water, and the life of Nial Kyle to reproach you if you do not tell me who killed my son. And Finn says, A vessel and water were brought to me, and I washed my hands and I put my thumb under my tooth of knowledge. And this is one of the few times that Finn's uh, tooth of knowledge and his thumb of knowledge is mentioned. Um, it's a whole other backstory that mentions how he has a kind of a kind of second sight. And he says, Knowledge and truth were revealed to me. That is, that your father, Diarmuid, had killed the son of the steward, and I myself offered compensation when that was revealed to me. But the steward refused that from me, so that I was compelled to tell him that it was your father who killed his son. The steward said that there was not inside a man for whom it was more easy to give compensation to him than your father, 
because he himself also had a son inside. And the steward said that he would not take any compensation except that you, Diarmuid, should be placed between his two knees and that he would forgive the death of his son if he let you safe from him. Angus became very angry with the steward at that speech. And your father was about to take his head off until I dissuaded him. After that, the steward came up, having a magic rod of sorcery with him, and he struck his own son, I assume the corpse of his son, with that rod and made a singed pig without ear or tail of him. And the steward said, I put you under injunctions that you have the same length of life as Diarmuid, and that it be by you that he shall fall in the end. And as I mentioned, uh, at the start of that essay I just read from where the the length of someone's life is matched by the life and death of one of these boars and that is what is happening with Diarmuid, this curse. Now the pig went out of the door and when Angus heard those injunctions he put to you under the injunctions never to hunt swine and that boar is the boar of Ben Goldman and it is not right for you to wait for it and Diarmid says, I had no knowledge of those injunctions until now, and I will not leave this mound until it comes to me, and you leave Bran with me. I will not, said Finn, for oftentimes before this boar has escaped him. And then Finn went to leave the mound. Diarmid says, I give my word that it is to kill me that you designed this hunt, Finn. And if it is, there I am fated to die. There is no use for me to avoid it. And if you want um, uh, a sense of what their outlook on life was, it is basically that. Um, Diarmuid feels bound to this older man, as he had been from youth onwards. Uh, this man knew his father. Um, he understands that uh, uh, it is a taboo for him to go on the hunt, and yet he wants to go on the hunt. Uh, he understands that Finn has has uh, orchestrated this whole, this entire scene so that he should die. But for whatever reason, whether honor or his sense of doom or fate or um, whatever it might be, uh, if it is there that I am fated to die, there is no use for me to avoid it. And after that, the boar came up at the bin with the Fianna after it, and Diarmuid slipped Machanchul from its leash against it, his dog, and that did not profit him, for it, the dog, did not wait for the boar, but fled before it. And Diarmuid said, Woe to him who does not follow the counsel of a good wife, for Granya told me at dawn take my other dog, Mortlock, and the god Dierig with me. And with that, he put a finger into the silken loop of Gabuid on Lamhaig, which he had in his hand, and he aimed a most successful cast at the pig, so that he struck him right in the middle of its face and of its forehead. And he did not cut a single bristle on it, and not even did he wound it. With that, he took out his sword, and he struck it on the back, and he did not cut a single bristle on it. And actually his sword broke in two. 
And with that, the boar made a venomous, fearless spring on Diarmut, and it tripped him. Literally, it took the sod which was under his feet, and the top of his head came under, i.e. he fell headlong. And when he was rising up, it happened that one leg was on either side of the boar, and his face looked backward. And it went down the slope of the hill without being able to put Diarmut off from its back. And it went from there until it reached another local name, I assume, to, uh, to give a sense of how far they were rolling. And when it reached the waterfall, it gave three swift leaps across the fall, hither and thither, and it could not but put Diarmut off during all that time. It came back the same way and uphill to the ban again. When it reached the top of the hill, it put Diarmut off, and when he was falling to the ground, it gave a fearless spring on him, and it let out his and it let out his bowels and his entrails about him. And as it was leaving the mound, Diarmut aimed a successful cast at it, of the stump of the sword which was in his hand, so that he struck it in the middle of the navel, so that he let out its bowels and its entrails about it, so that he left it without its life. Therefore. Such is the name of the wrath upon which that ban. Such, what he's saying is the, the, the place where this happened was named ever after from this incident. With that, Finn and the Fianna of Ireland came to that place, and the signs of death and of lasting extinction were coming upon Diarmut. It was then that Finn said, and here we have uh, Finn's revenge here. It was then that Finn said, I like to see you like that, Diarmut, and I regret that all the women of Ireland are not looking at you now, for your beauty is turned to ugliness and your good form to deformity. And Diarmut says, It is in your power to heal me from those, if you yourself wish it. And Finn says, How should I heal you? And Diarmut says, Well, indeed, for you handled the salmon of knowledge, which was in the Boyne in the river, and to whomsoever you should give a drink from your palms would be perfectly sound from all diseases after that. And Finn says, you have not deserved of me that I should give you that drink. And there follows a, a sort of back and forth between them about who has helped and uh, who has not helped. And finally, um, you have about a page of that where they reminisce together, sort of. And finally, uh, a man named Oscar, son of Oshin, says, Finn, do you know that I am closer akin to Diarmud than to you, and that I would not allow you not to give him this drink? And Finn says, I do not know of a well in this place, in this band. That is not true, said Diarmut, for but only nine paces from you, only nine paces from you, is the most truly beautiful, pure watered well in the entire world. After that, Finn went towards the well, and he took the full of his two palms with him, and he had not reached more than halfway when he let the water run down through his palms, and he said that he could not bring the water with him. I give my word, said Diarmut that it is of your own will that you do that. And Finn went for the water again, 
and he had not brought it more than the same distance, when again he let it down through his palms. I swear before my arms, said Osgar, son of Oshin, that if you do not bring the water with you quickly, Finn, there shall not leave this place of the two of us, but he who is the strongest. Finn returned for the water the third time, always threes, for Diarmuid because of that speech, and he brought with him the full of his two palms of water. But as he was coming to the place, the life parted from the body of Diarmuid. And that must have been an incredible scene to hear as well, the uh, the three feigned attempts to get water and the threats given to Finn from Osgar, son of Oshin. And for those of you who heard my episode on the destruction of Dederga's hostel, you'll recall that the end of that story also involves um, the, the loyalty, uh, loyalty to one's friend being proven by fetching, uh, fetching a dying man a, a drink of water. In the case of that other story, the destruction of the Derga's hostel, it is a severed head that begs a drink of water, and uh, the man's friend, and I believe the man's subordinate, travels all through Ireland just to find that, uh, that drink of water for him. And here, uh, here, what is it, um, nine, only nine paces away, there's enough water to save Jeremut, and Finn will not do it. And so we say, as he was coming to the place, the life parted from the body of Diarmuid. And the company of the Fianna of Ireland that was at that place raised three mighty, exceedingly great, mournful shouts out loud, mourning Diarmuid. And Osgar rode up in a fierce attack of great anger and was about to cut off the head of Finn on the spot. But that his father Oshin said, Son, it is true that he has deserved that of you, and of all the Fianna of Ireland, through not helping Diarmuid. But do not cause the two sorrows in one day for us, and let us leave this mound now for fear that Angus might come to us, and that he would not believe from us that it was not we who brought death to Diarmuid, although Finn is guilty of his death. And Finn and that company of the Fianna of Ireland went to leave the mound uh, with Machul in Fionn's hand, and Oshin and Osgar and Kelte and these other warriors. They returned, and they put their four cloaks together on Diarmuid, and they themselves went on after Finn and the Fianna, and no account is given of them until they reached Wrath Grania. And Grania was before them, out in the battlements of the Wrath, waiting to get tidings of Diarmuid. And she saw Finn and the Fionn of Ireland coming to her in that manner. And, let's see, where is it? And Grania said, if Diarmuid were, were alive, it is not in Finn's hand that his dog, Mac, Uncool would be seen coming to this place. And it is thus Grania was at this time, heavy and pregnant, and she fell out over the ramparts of the wrath and gave birth to three dead sons on the spot. 
When Oshin saw the woman in travail, he sent he sent Finn and the Fianna away from that place. As Finn and the Fianna were leaving the place, Grania lifted up her head, and she asked Finn to leave Machanhul with herself. Finn said that he would not, and he would not think it too much that he himself should have had that much of Diarmuid's inheritance. Oshin made for him, and he took the hound from Fionn's hand, and he brought it with him to Grania, and he himself followed his people. And it's very striking here that uh, that Finn McCool, who has this famous second sight and these magical abilities, um, and who I believe has an entire cycle of stories named for him, the, the Finn McCool stories or cycle, that he should be portrayed in such a such an awful way in this story. Um, it says something. Um, now Grania's household came out, and they carried her with them into the wrath. It was then that Grania sent three hundred of the household which he which she had to Ben Goldman for Diarmid's body to bring it to herself at Wrath Grania. The household proceeded to Ben Goldman, and they found Angus of the Brew there before them, with his three hundred of a household around him over the body of Diarmid. And when Grania's household recognized Angus, they turned the rough side of their shields out as a sign of peace. And Angus recognized them. And when they came to that place, they themselves and the people of Angus raised three great, mighty, fearful shouts over the body of Diarmid. And here I made a note in the, in the margins of uh, the, the, the shout that is given over the body of uh, over the body of, uh, of course I can't think of his name now, um, who dies at the end of Beowulf, the great king, um, so that the noise and the echo of those great shouts was heard in the clouds of heaven and in the dome of the firmament. And Angus said, I have never been for one night, I have never been for one night since I took you with me to the Brugge over the Boyne, when you had completed nine months until tonight, that I was not watching you and guarding you against your enemies, Diarmid, and alas for the treachery that Fionn has done to you, notwithstanding your peace with him. And he said the following lay there, the following morning poem. Alas, brave Diarmid of the fair limbs, your blood was annihilated during your fame, the blood of your body was destroyed. From the poisonous and mighty swift tooth you got a sharp cutting of a great boar. From the deceitful, wicked, treacherous, dragging, powerfully big-gap-nosed one. Again, that is Finn McCool being described there. The boar of Ben Goldman was, was with vigor, caused the smiting of Diarmid of the fine shape. Not softly nor gently it went into his wound, over the cold rathlin of Arnaich. It is a pity that the hospitable Finn himself having made peace without reproach, caused spillings of water at a thought, sad the plight, from which Jermud got a violent death. Horsemen of the fairy mound without defilement, let Jermud of the fine shape be lifted by you to the brug, which is sweet, full of hosts, everlasting. We shall remember this great sorrow. Alas. 
and the final two pages here. After that lay Angus, after that lay, Angus asked Grania's household what errand had brought them to that place. They said that it was Grania who had sent them for the body of Diarmuid to bring it home with her to Rathgrania. Angus said that he would not let them take the body of Diarmuid, and that he himself would take it with him over to the brew to the brug over the Boyne. And since I cannot revive him again, uh, Angus says, I will put an aerial life into him so that he will talk to me every day, whatever that might mean. And since I cannot revive him again, I will put an aerial life into him so that he will talk with me every day. As for the people of Grania, they went to Rath Grania to meet herself and told her that Angus of the Brug did not let them take the body of Diarmid with them, and that he himself brought it with him to the Brug over the Boyne. Grania said that she herself had no power over him, and she sent messengers and envoys from her to the children of Diarmid, to the cantred of Corca Duibne, where they were being reared and fully nurtured. So just in that paragraph you see that uh, you see the power of these foster bonds that occurred uh, apparently just with uh, with sons early in life. That if the if the man is killed, his foster father, not his wife, has uh, the rights over his body. Apparently, because the foster father was responsible for his safety, and then you see that uh, the same thing is happening with Jeremut and Grania's children. Uh, they aren't with her at Wrath Grania, they are being fostered out as well, and she has to send news of their father's death to them. It's all nicely bound together in this way, and I'm sure someone with uh, a degree in all of this could uh, explain all of the social custom that is the literal social custom of the time that is attached to all of this. And, the story says, it is thus those children were with hospitallers and victuallers and young warriors, plowing and serving them. And each son of them had a thirty hundred of a household. And one of them was the most respected and most accomplished of all the children of Diarmut. And to him the other four were subject, and they named the other four uh, great unpronounceable Irish names, at least to my eyes. And when those messengers reached them, they proceeded to Rathgrania with all their household and their hosts, and their faithful and loving followers, asked them what they themselves should do, since they were not going to encounter war and conflict with Finn and with the Fianna of Ireland. And the great son of Diarmud told them to stay in their own places, and that if they themselves made peace with Finn, they, they need fear nothing. And if they did not make peace with them, they would have their choice of a lord. And they went on by every short way, and no account is given of them until they reached Rath Grania. And Grania bestowed a genuine welcome on her own children, and gave a kiss and a welcome to the son and the daughter of the king of Leinster, and they entered Rath Grania together. And they were seated at the sides of the delightful hostel, according to the nobility and the patrimony of each one, and they were served with mild, tasty foods and moderate, very sweet ales and strong fermented drinks, 
and fair ornate drinking horns until the chiefs became exhilarated and gently mirthful so that the story begins with uh, uh, with the wedding feast and ends with this funeral feast this uh, not, not necessarily funeral feast a gathering family feast to plan revenge in which the chiefs become exhilarated and gently mirthful and then it was Grania's daughter of Cormac then it was Grania daughter of Cormac who spoke in a high clear and a pure voice in the midst of everyone and what she said was this and Grania is given the last speech and the last song uh, it was her words it was her powerful words that had Dearmud fall in love with her it was her magic wasn't it who uh, put everyone to sleep so they could get out of uh, Finn's feast and um, it was the power of her words that uh, just sort of uh, turned the key in the lock just to make sure that put the taboos on Diarmuid. So it's her words uh, running throughout the entire story that are so powerful. And it's worth pointing out that um, at no point that I could find anyway is the fact that her words are given such power and her influence is emphasized so much. At no point is that seen to be um, an unfortunate or a negative thing, as if a woman shouldn't have such influence. And so that is a wonderful thing to see, too. And this is what she says. Children of Diarmuid, your father was killed by Thin Makul, notwithstanding the agreements and conditions of their peace, and you avenge that well on him. And there are your portions of the inheritance of your father for you, said she, namely, his weapons and his armor and his various sharp weapons. His weapons and his armor and his various sharp weapons. And I will myself divide them out among you, and I myself will have the goblets, the drinking horns and the cups, and the beautiful golden drinking vessels, and the kind of the cattle herds undivided. So uh, even to the end, uh, it becomes uh, an excuse for a catalog a catalog of a feast, a catalog of inheritance, a catalog of weapons, of children's names and places. And I will leave you with the lay, the, uh, the, the morning song that she recited that ends the story. Arise, children of Diarmuid, make your watchful attack. May your adventure be successful tidings of a good man have come to you. The sword for Donchad, the best son that Yermut had, and the Gaderg for somebody else. They, i.e. the sword of Gaderg, lead to every advantage. Give his breastplate from me to another. Safe everybody on which it be put, and the shield for Kanla, for the chief who upholds the battalions. The drinking horns, the goblets, the cups, the drinking vessels, without doubt. A gift for a woman without pleasure. I alone shall have them all. And these last four lines also uh, illustrate the outlook of these folks. And 
last four lines of the of the pursuit of Diarmut and Grania, which in which she sends her children out on their own pursuit, says, "Kill women and children, to spite Finn of the Fianna. Do not do treachery or deceit. Make strife, and arise." And we might quite wonder how you do that, but indeed, do not do treachery or deceit. Make strife and arise. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.